Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice. Hi everyone and welcome to My Millennial Money Medical. My name is Dev Raga and in this episode, we will discuss the concept of a financial bubble. There's been a lot of talk about this, particularly in the speculative asset sector like cryptocurrency, NFTs and blockchain technology, and also in the mainstream investing circles, uh, especially if you're investing in the Dow Jones or S&P 500, people think they're reaching bubble status. So I think it's worthwhile to learn more about this concept. Now, this episode is being recorded in December 2021. And it's going to be released in 2022, likely January or February. So we're a bit ahead in terms of recording. So keep that in mind. But the concept of a financial bubble doesn't change whenever you listen to it. Now, if you want me to discuss a specific topic or if you have a specific question, don't hesitate to contact me via Twitter or Facebook. Before we go on to the main topic of financial bubbles, I had an anonymous question from a nurse who asks, Hi Dev, I'm a nurse aged 60 years old. I have a net worth of around $2 million. The split is personal home, $600,000, super, $800,000, outside of super investments, around $600,000. Recently sold one of our investment properties and after tax, our profit is around $500,000. I have no debts, My children have all left home, all grown up and are independent. I currently work about two days a week, mainly to keep my skills up. I would like to retire probably in the next two to three years. My spouse is already retired and has a sizable super. So should I invest the $500,000 into my super or outside of super? I'm healthy, have no imminent medical issues, which would make me need the funds urgently. That's a really good question. First of all, Congratulations on reaching a net worth of $2 million around there. I love hearing stories like this because it just goes to show that if you have financial goals, objectives, and you just stick to them over the long term, which I suspect this particular nurse did, then you're going to end up with significant amount of wealth. Now, I did notice that her partner, I'm assuming it's a she, but I suppose it could be a he, um, but their partner also has assets in their super, which we don't really know how much that is, but sizable, that's good. So essentially outside of their own home, they're worth about $1.4 million and have incoming money of around $500,000 to invest. So the question is, what do they do? Now, obviously consult your financial advisor, but I'm a great fan of the Australian superannuation system. Now, you can contribute up to $110,000 per year in non-concessional contributions every year if you're under the age of 67 
and have a transfer balance cap of less than $1.7 million in today's dollars. Now, there are some finer details here, but that's the general gist of it. And don't forget, you're unlikely maximising your superannuation concessional contributions at this stage, given you only work two days a week. It may still be worthwhile to do this if your tax bracket is likely greater than 15%. Now, unfortunately, this particular nurse won't be able to carry forward their unused super concessional contributions because they've exceeded the $500,000 in their super. It's got to be less than $500,000 before they're able to actually use the unused super contributions. I think it's called the carry forward rules. But this nurse can actually take advantage of the bring forward non-concessional super contributions rule. So if you don't know what super is, essentially it's a great Australian invention. Uh, Well, I shouldn't say Australian invention, but it's an Australian retirement system where you can save for retirement in a very tax effective way. And there are two things that you need to understand. One is the concessional contributions. What that means is basically it's pre-tax dollars into super and non-concessional contributions, which is post-tax dollars into super. And I'm going to talk this concept called bring forward rules. So we need to go into this a little bit more detail and that applies to non-concessional contributions. Um, if you've heard my podcast in the past, I rant on about the concessional contributions cap, but I don't talk much about the non-concessional contributions crap, cap. Sorry, And a lot of people ask me, when is it a good time to actually maximize that? And this is probably a good time to do it. So what is the bring forward rules when it comes to non-concessional contributions? Now, the main aim of this is to allow people who are close to retirement to build up their super nest egg and get close to the transfer balance cap as possible. Because in today's dollars, anything less than $1.7 million in retirement phase during their retirement, it just grows and earns money. You pay zero tax. Zero tax. So it makes sense to build up your super up to this transfer balance cap. Now, if you've already beyond this cap of 1.7 million, then it's still potentially worthwhile given anything above this is moved to what's called the accumulation phase, which is what a lot of listeners will be in at the moment. And within that phase, you only pay 15% flat tax on earnings, provided you don't breach the division 293 rule, which is if you earn more than quarter of a million dollars a year. But even then, it might actually be worthwhile putting money into your superannuation. So it's potentially very tax effective, especially if your super has a franking dividend system implemented as well. And that depends on the type of assets you're invested in. Now, the franking dividend system is very unique to Australia. Not many countries do it. So if you've got mainly Australian equities, you may be eligible to claim some of those credits when you do the taxation. Now, with the bring forward rule, you're able to bring forward three years worth of non-concessional super contributions and dump it all in the one year. And each year is worth about 110,000. So how would this practically work for this particular nurse who asked this question? Remember, they've got half a million dollars to invest. Now suppose it's July 1st, 2021, and the nurse is 60 years old. They can contribute $110,000 non-concessionally for July, 2021, to June 30th, 2022. 
for that financial year. Then they can also contribute another $110,000 for July the 1st, 2022 to June the 30th, 2023. And again, contribute another $110,000 for the July the 1st, 2023 to June 30th, 2024 financial year. And that'll probably take them up to age 62, 63. Now, the nurse can do this either $110,000 each year or, you know, they can do it every year if they wanted to, or they can just bring forward the three years and lump it all in at $330,000 on the 1st of July, 2021. And that's why it's called the bring forward rule. Now, if they did lump it all in, they won't be able to contribute for the next three years any more non-concessional contributions because they've already brought forward all of their contributions into 2021, July the 1st. But if they didn't lump it all in, then they could just contribute 110000 every year moving forward. It doesn't matter. Now, if they did lump it all in, their super, in this particular case, will instantly jump up to $1.1 million. Remember, they had a super of 800000 and they're lumping in $330,000 um, into their um, superannuation as a non-concessional contribution. And that, you know, takes them from 800 to around 1.1 million, a little bit more than that. And they're still working. So they'll still have their super in accumulation phase. Now that 1.1 million, excluding any concessional contributions they may have, will compound year on year until retirement or when they choose to retire. Now the tax efficiency of investing within a superstructure is phenomenal. So definitely run the figures past your financial advisor. I'm talking to this particular nurse but don't negate the value of super. And for all of you listening, you need to learn the difference between concessional contributions and non-concessional contributions, carry forward contributions rule and bring forward contributions rule. They're the four concepts that you need to learn and master and you might want to do a bit of reading about it. So congrats on potentially reaching a two and a half to $3 million net worth by age 65. Accounting for your partner super also, which I don't really have much information about that, but I suspect pretty sizable amount is a good thing, given that they're able to use that to fund their retirement at this present stage. That's a fantastic position to be in. Now, as a nurse, you're able to build wealth for the long term. The principles of finance doesn't matter what profession you're in. Now, nurses probably earn about eighty dollars to $150,000 per year. And if they have executive roles, a little bit more than that. And between working, having children, raising family, it's still possible to build a sizable net worth. Now, the advantage for this particular nurse is that their partner also worked, which is great. And it's not an abnormal situation for most people. But the key here is they've kept it consistent. They've considered low-cost investing. They've paid themselves first. They maximised their super. They avoided unnecessary debt. And most people, if they just did that, you're more likely to get close to financial independence at a similar age, if not earlier. And that's not different to any healthcare workers or any workers. So the principles of finance doesn't change. Behaviours do. Now, the only question I have left over then is, if they put $330,000 lump sum into their super, 
under the bring forward rules, they would still have $170,000 left over out of the half a million. So what's the plan for that? Now, they could consider that as their income for the next two years and just call it quits. They could potentially just retire today. Or they could talk to their financial advisor or accountant on how they can tax effectively contribute to their partner's superannuation provided their partner is also under the age of 67. Or they can just contribute $170,000 as a lump sum to the investments outside of their super, which they still got. So they've got plenty of options. Hope that answers that question and clarifies the situation a bit better. And congratulations once again. And of course, thank you for your lifelong service in the healthcare space. And the four concepts for everyone else is concessional contributions, non-concessional contributions, bring forward rules, and carry forward rules. Now, interestingly, I was actually speaking to a nurse recently who recently renewed their APRA renewal. And in that APRA renewal, they'd mentioned that they did not want to renew their registration anymore as a nurse because they happened to be dual qualified and they were actually a paramedic. But apparently APRA doesn't allow for that due to the chronic healthcare staff nursing shortage, which I didn't realise. And basically every year, APRA run a survey of all healthcare workers and they routinely ask when they think the healthcare worker will retire. And with nursing, it's a particular question that they ask routinely because a lot of the nursing workforce are getting older. Same as doctors. A lot of the doctor workforce is getting older as well. And they're close to retirement or they're burnt out from working all these years. And of course, the pandemic has topped it all off. So there's a real need for nurses out there. And this is particularly true for nursing shortages in rural areas. Now, one of my pet gripes about paying staff in the healthcare industry is I don't see why they don't pay rural staff more than city staff. It doesn't make sense to run a rural health service with the same pay rates as city staff. Now, money ultimately talks, but in the healthcare space, pay rates in the public system are not negotiable and they're very much defined. And if you work in the country versus city, you get paid the same, despite rural workforce often have longer hours, less time off, less support, less training opportunities, more logistical issues, more travel distances, and less recreational activities when compared to city. So I think this needs to be looked at Australia-wide. And perhaps a MMM system, which is not my millennial money, but it's a modified Monash model classification, and they basically, you know, classify rural areas based on their MMM classification. And they define rural areas based on their location, workforce shortage, and maybe they should just create pay scales for healthcare workers to attract staff to move to the country. And the other thing is, most of the healthcare space doesn't have much options from working from home, although there is some opportunity in COVID land. So hopefully that summarises a few challenges that healthcare workers are facing, particularly in the country, and the funding model probably needs to be looked at. That's not to say that, you know, staff working in the city hospitals or city healthcare space, whatever healthcare worker you are, don't work very hard, 
But there are some challenges working in the rural areas in Australia, particularly in remote areas as well, where often staff are making decisions based on very limited information or limited investigative capacity and limited resources. And I think that needs to be rewarded a little bit better. That's just my personal view. You might feel strongly otherwise, but um, that's important to understand. Now to the main topic, what is a financial bubble? Now, this is when the price of a particular asset rises spectacularly, often without any rationalization. And once it reaches its peak, it tends to make its way down, again, in a spectacular fashion. And often bubbles are created by exuberant behavior, by investors, and there are various stages associated with them. Now, if you study bubbles all the time, you'll see the stages and you probably have heard of them. But fundamentally, in a bubble, the price of the asset trades well above its intrinsic value, and then the fundamentals are just lost. There's no fundamentals. There's no rhyme or reason as to why it's happening. And the rise in price is often disproportionate to reality. The main thing about bubbles is also that it's all too obvious only after the fact. And they're only realised in retrospect. It's very, very hard to identify concretely before a bubble bursts. Now, can bubbles happen in any sector? And the answer is yes, and they have happened in all sectors. There are four main bubble types. You've got the stock market bubble, where basically stocks rise rapidly. Um, You know, dot-com bubble comes to mind. The credit bubble, when the price of money becomes so cheap that people borrow loads of money. The 2007 GFC crisis was precipitated by subprime mortgage. That comes to mind. Commodity bubbles such as gold, oil, agriculturals and other materials, and asset market bubbles, which involve sectors other than stock markets such as real estate. Now, there are five stages to any bubble, and it's helpful to understand all of them. Then we'll focus on a few bubbles historically and try to relate it to the principles. Now, the first stage is called displacement. This is when investors get really excited about a new product, new company, new technology or new service. Or investors get really excited about an economic situation such as low interest rates. And this means money is cheap, so borrowing is made easier. So I can just borrow money to invest is a common term seen in the FIRE forums, and you'll see this all the time. Now, that's called, in my view, playing the debt game. Let's use an example to highlight this point. Amy is a disability support worker and is married with two children. Her partner is an IT professional. They've noted many of their friends are tapping into the equity of their home and then taking the money to invest in the stock market. The main reason they're doing this is because money is cheap. That is, interest rates on their home loans is at historic lows. So it turns out if they borrow money at the current interest rate, which is fixed at 2.1% for this particular couple, and they invest in the stock market, even if it rises to just 7% per annum in returns, they've just made 4.9% by playing the debt game. They've also noted a trend of the stock market consistently giving trends of about 9% per annum. So achieving 7% per annum is a pretty conservative estimate and is not that unexpected. This is their assessment. 
So Amy and her partner discuss this and think it's a good idea. So apply to extend their home to tap into their equity. The home is worth about $900,000 and they only have a loan on it for around $300,000. They wanted to max it out to borrowing at about 80% loan value ratio so they don't get pinged with LMI, which is loan mortgage insurance in Australia. So they apply to borrow around $420,000 at an interest rate of 2.1% fixed for two years and intend to use that money to invest in the stock market. This is a principal and interest loan. Stage one, displacement. Stage two is boom. Now this is when more and more participants enter the market. As more and more people enter the market, more money is now chasing the same amount of products and services. So the price of the assets starts to rise. This is supply and demand 101. More demand, same supply, means market prices rise. Now this also signals media coverage and that achieves mainstream status. So the media now start to report the rise in price of particular stocks or stock market, whatever it is, which catches more people's attention, which means more participants enter the market as a response. Fear of missing out sets in. Now the stage is set for boom times. The so-called once-in-a-lifetime opportunity is here. Now, going back to Amy's example, Amy and her partner have borrowed $420,000 and they decided to dollar-cost average into the market, which is the stock market, perhaps $100,000 or so every quarter. And this takes them about a year and a bit to fully invest their money. Amy and her partner are not just one couple of family that do this, potentially hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, are potentially doing the same thing around the country. They see the ads on TV, Equity Mate from major banks, lots of other lending companies have ads on their TV. They talk about it at work, people talk about it with their family and friends, and it becomes a water cooler conversation. More and more people start borrowing money to invest in the stock market. Stage three, euphoria. Now, this is when the fundamentals are breached. Market prices start reaching record highs. People are euphoric. They're so happy with their purchase. Ironically, even though the market has reached a peak, they don't realise it. They want more. They become greedy. They plough more money into the asset class. This creates even higher prices. Traditional valuation methods are deemed useless and they try and come up with new metrics. Phrases like, the new norm, is often used. When people say we're in a bubble, often people scoff at them. And not only that, they don't just politely disagree, they start calling the naysayers bad names. The phrase, there will always be buyers willing to pay more, plays out everywhere. Now back to our example, Amy and her partner have now fully invested the $420,000 into the stock market, over 12 months. They start to see news media reporting on the crazy prices. They get a bit nervous, but nothing much changes. The market doesn't crash and the bull run continues. They're actually quite happy and don't change their investing style. Now that the rise in prices has only happened for a short term, maybe one or two years, we're not talking about the long term here. We're talking about short term. Stage three, euphoria. Now, stage four, profit taking. This is when people in the know, the so-called smart money, start realising there is a bubble about to burst. They start sensing something is wrong. 
So they start offloading their investments. They start selling and realise their profits and gains. They don't pick the right time, but then they sense the time is nearing, so it's better to get out now. Now, some of these people may not sell out at the peak, but they're selling out because they're getting worried. Now, sometimes despite this, the bubble keeps expanding for some weeks, if not months, sometimes even a few years after that. Smart money is not you or me, it's the institutional investors of a lot of time, energy, a lot more data, inside information to make informed decisions. They see trends even before you and I blink. Often by the time we read it in the news, it's way too late. And some examples of smart money are Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger, Ray Dalio, Peter Lynch, etc., etc. Now back to our example. One day, Amy reads in the newspaper a small article about a potential crash coming up. It's not front page news. It's not even reported in the TV media or radio media. It's just an article in the newspaper on page 11. She doesn't pay much attention to it. She Googles it, researches it a little bit, and can't find anything concrete. All the while, the smart money is slowly getting rid of their holdings over a period of time. Stage four, profit taking. Now to stage five. This is the final stage called the panic stage. This is when the bubble finally bursts. Once it bursts, there's no going back in the immediate phase. It's a bit like pricking a balloon. It just pops. When balloons pop quickly, we all know that exactly what happens with financial bubbles too. The speed at which everything happens is really quick, sometimes within days to weeks to months. And during this time, investors who borrowed money like Amy and her partner lose a lot of money. Because borrowing money to investing is always a risk. Now, Amy and her partner analyse their risks and decided to borrow money anyway, and that's completely fine, provided they made their judgment based on all the available information for them. Now, when you borrow money to invest, you can make a lot of money, but you can also lose a lot of money. So coming back to Amy's example for this final stage of the bubble cycle, revisiting their situation again, just a reminder, the home loan was $300,000, which they owed, with the value of the home being $900,000, and they wanted to borrow up to 80% LVR, which means their loan is now $720,000. So they borrowed $420,000 and tapped into the equity of their home. The interest rate is 2.1%, fixed for about two years, and that is principal and interest. And that works out to be a monthly mortgage repayment of around $2,700. It turns out a lot of people tapped into their equity of their home and did exactly what Amy did they borrowed money to invest. And as a result, since the stock market is crashing, the value of the stocks is now only 60% of what they bought it for. There's mania. People are panicking. And the bigger problem is the stock market crash seeds uncertainty in the economy, which means real job losses. This is a perpetuating cycle. Some people took margin loans even instead of borrowing money for their home, so they ended up in even bigger trouble. Now, with margin loans, the lender will make a margin call if the value of stocks drops below a certain ratio compared to the loan. That's called the loan-to-value ratio. Then they will place a call to the investor and sometimes sell the stocks at whatever price they can get to repay some of the loans. Now, I've actually spoken to people where they've had not even a margin call placed because they couldn't get hold of them 
and basically whoever has the loan starts selling the stocks at whatever prices they can get because they couldn't get hold of that person who holds those stocks. So you don't have to place that call. If you can't get through to the investor, then they'll just start selling it willy-nilly at whatever price they can get it at. Now, with economic uncertainty, Amy's partner loses his job. Remember, he was an IT professional. And this means their ability to tighten up and pay the mortgage is hampered on Amy's single income. And this means they're potentially in a position of either selling their stocks to pay off their mortgage or reduce it. But the stock market now is 40% less value than when it was purchased, so they will lose a lot of money or simply sell their home for whatever price they can get, which is unlikely going to be the same price as their value given the economic uncertainty. You can see how this pans out step by step and how it can potentially affect the average investor. Now, the overall outcome is not great for Amy and her family. And all she wanted was to tap into the equity and invest in the stock market, which is completely fine. Now, the risk is much lower for Amy and her partner had they simply saved the portion of their income and invested it without having to borrow any money because they could have ridden out the stock market bubble, potentially. Note that borrowing money to invest is not always a bad thing. That's not what I'm suggesting, but it's a risk and you need to work out your risk profile before embarking on such strategies. So in a bubble situation, if you didn't borrow money and invested, it still affects you but you can potentially ride it out much more smoothly. Whereas if you owe money to other people, that's where the trouble potentially starts. And in a bubble situation, you can potentially lose everything. So borrowing money to invest is double-edged sword. When everything goes well, everything goes really well. When everything goes badly, it goes horribly wrong. So be careful. Now let's take a quick ad break And I want to share with you a real-life example of an Australian iconic stock bubble which happened in the 70s, which had all the hallmarks of a bubble. We'll be right back. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click Get Help, and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers, and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click Get Help. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Okay, now we're back. Now, 
let's discuss a real life example of an Australian company stock market bubble, which I think most of you may not have heard of, particularly millennials listening to this podcast. And that's called Poseidon NL stock market bubble. So that happened in the 70s. And basically during the Vietnam War, nickel was in such high demand. And Nickel is often used in war items like guns and ammunition and armour and tanks, etc. And at the time, Canada was the world's largest supplier of nickel, but they just couldn't keep up with the demand. So the price of nickel shot up. Now, in today's dollars, the price went up to $200,000 per tonne. That's insane. Today, the price of nickel hovers around 28 to 30 bucks per tonne. Now, that was the displacement stage where everyone gets excited about a mineral. Enter Poseidon NL. Now, the NL stood for no liability, which I thought was a bit of a strange name for a company, but anyway. And they listed in the Australian stock market and was trading at an unremarkable 80 cents per share. The company had pretty poor fundamentals and didn't make much of a profit, if any. They were a mining company. Now, in 1969-1970, reports came out that this company, at the time that nickel was in significant demand, reports came out that this company had located a large reserve of nickel in WA, near the township of Laverton. And this led to the mania in the stock market for this particular company, and people thought that Poseidon was going to be a good company to bet on. The share price of Poseidon NL went up through the roof from $0.80 a share to $12.50 a share, up to at one stage $200 per share. And I think it actually peaked at $280 per share in February 1970. The one UK broker even suggested a price target of $350 per share. Remember, this was in 1970s. In today's dollars, that price target was around $4,200 per share. Lots of people became millionaires overnight. Now, the other dodgy thing that was happening is some insiders who knew bought up big on the news as they knew the news was about to hit the media. And interestingly, back in the 70s, insider trading was actually not illegal. Surprising. Now, the other major thing was all of this speculation that the nickel reserves found, everyone just assumed that it was actually good quality nickel. And we know that any mining project requires research, reports, planning before they start execution of the mining project. And it takes months to years sometimes for all this to happen. But in this particular st- you know, example, it kind of all happened very, very quickly based on speculation. And the stop growth in this particular company happened between one and three months. So there was the boom phase, the euphorics phase. Everyone wanted in on the action. And some investors felt they missed out. So they started thinking that all mining companies are a good bet. So started to invest in other mining companies. There was no rhyme or reason for it. Basically, if you're a mining company, you're a darling of the industry and investors loved you. This was especially true in the WA Windara region. Now for the spectacular fall. Once the Vietnam War came to a close and it was sort of nearing the end, the demand for nickel dried up because we don't need ammunition or guns anymore then Canada was actually able to meet the demand. And when Canada was able to meet the demand for nickel on a global scale, 
there was no real reason for Australia to get that much involved. And the price of nickel started to drop. Supply, demand, simple. Reports came back that the type of nickel found in this particular WA reserve near Laverton wasn't all that pure. Smart money had already started to get out of Poseidon just before all of this happened. And investors started to lose confidence and a selling frenzy began. Prices of shares in Poseidon NL plummeted to its original value to less than a dollar. And of course, all of the other miners which rode this wave also lost value. Poseidon actually did produce nickel though from all of those nickel reserves that they found, but it was just too late. Investors started to blame the government for lack of regulation and improper trade practices being allowed to flourish. And that whole thing about insider trading and that it wasn't illegal in Australia back in the 70s astounds me. But here we go. That's what happened. So what good came of all this was called the Ray Report. It was named after a Tasmanian Liberal senator. And the Ray Report eventually led to the development and creation of which famous Australian regulatory body? That's the question. I'll give you a couple of moments to think about that. And the answer is, it led to the creation of the Australian Securities and Investment Commission, ASIC. So there you go. A true Australian stock bubble, which had all the stages, which I'm sure a lot of you may not have heard about. Maybe, maybe some of you have, I'm not sure. And of course, let's not forget the Japanese stock market bubble in the 1980s, the 99-2000 internet.com bubble, the GFC bubble in 2007, and even going back to the tulip mania craze back in the 1600s. Every bubble, if analysed retrospectively, is obvious. And every bubble, when analysed retrospectively, has all the five stages. That's about it for this episode. Can anyone else think of any other financial bubbles that they see happening Perhaps it's brewing right now. And I'll leave it there. Remember to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you may be using. I'll leave a five-star review on all of the platforms. That's even better. And please leave a positive review because it really helps me engage with the audience and I do read them. If you have a negative review, please contact me rather than posting it on there because it affects the ratings and blah, 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 all that sort of stuff. But I want to hear your feedback. So Happy for you to contact me, provide me with advice, whatever you want to do to tell me how to do this a little bit better. Remember, the main aim of this is to engage and educate healthcare workers or anyone that's listening about personal finance investing principles. Now, the more ratings and reviews you leave, the more people get access to the podcast. That's obvious. So please keep them coming. And thank you for those that have already done it and have also told me about it. So thank you very much. My name is Dev Raga. This is My Millennial Money Medical. And until next time, please make sure you stay safe. We acknowledge the dark and young people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respect to their elders, past and present. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive, Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, is an authorised representative of Money Sherpa, Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services licence 451289.
Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.